All right. Well, um, two announcements for you guys real quick. One is uh, next Sunday, uh, we, have, uh, we have two baptisms next Sunday again, and so we have two more students, and so we encourage you to be here next Sunday to be, uh, to be a part of that and witness that. It's going to be awesome. And then also, uh, as you know, we're building a, a playground here um, in June, and we ran a little campaign when we got matching money um, from, the, from the state of Indiana, and we uh, if matching funds if we reach the, our goal of 30000 As of this morning, as of right now, we just checked, we're at $29,200. So before I come up for announcements later, we need 800 more dollars to, fit, to meet, our, meet our goal. So um, you, can, uh, you can do that and uh, see Eddie afterwards, or even in the middle of the sermon, if you just want to get up and go see him, uh, make sure you get that in. He's back there in the back waving his hands. That'd be awesome make our announcement that we have reached our goal there um, by the end of the service. So that's, that's awesome. It's a, it's, it'll, it's, it's a lot of money. 250 is our total goal. This will put us at 235, uh, put us right, right where we need to be. And uh, so we're very excited about that. So all right, that aside, Hebrews 13. Uh, we are in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. And uh, so we're working our way through uh, this last section. And uh, let me pray for us and we will get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, look at your word, to examine it uh, verse, verse by verse, word by word. Um, nor as we look at some very practical things today in the next couple weeks, may God you... Uh, Help us, convict us, show us, give us direction, give us guidance in terms of how we can live out the things in which um, you have uh, you've given us to do, uh, the ways in which we can worship and make, make much of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have, we have reached our final chapter in the book of Hebrews, and if you've been tracking along with us through the book of Hebrews, uh, through our time, uh, you will notice that we have spent 12 chapters, basically, on a lot of theology, 12 chapters on talking a lot about Jesus, right? I mean, that's just like chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Hebrews. And so when you first read chapter 13, if you've never read that before, and you've been following us through the first 12 chapters, it may at first appear a little strange. It may appear a little frantic even, a little separated from the rest of the book. You're like, this is very different than what was said previously. Uh, in some ways, it, it, re- it may read like... Um, like a, uh, like a basketball coach, right? He just called his last time out. He's got three minutes left in the tie ball game for the championship game. He's got three, he's got three minutes left in the game. He's got a 30-second timeout. He gets the players together, and he rattles off in 30 seconds every possible scenario that could happen in the next three minutes because this is the last time he can talk to them, right? And that's kind of how it reads a little bit. You're like, man, it's just bullet point after bullet point. If you read chapter 13, you know, the players break, and they go like, what did he just say? You know, that's too much. It's too much information for me to digest in this and how to run this. And so it may seem a little sporadic or disconnected, but actually what we're going to find out is it is very connected to not only what he has said in the first 12 chapters, but also each of these statements in chapter 13 are very much connected to one another. They actually flow from one another. These statements are actually all about worship. That's what they're about. Uh, they're about what does it look like uh, to make much of Jesus in our daily lives. If you look back in the previous verses in chapter 12, if you look at verse 28, look at what it says here in 1228, down in your Bibles there, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here it is. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. So what chapter 13 is, is answering the question, what is acceptable worship? <laughs> what does it look like? to worship Jesus. 
Um, and so that's what he's looking, like, looking at. And he made that comparison we saw last time together, that for those at Mount Sinai, those at the foot of the mountain back in Exodus, had a prescribed way to worship, right? They got, they got the law, and they got a way to worship. And here's what it looked like. It was called the Book of Leviticus, all right? Book of Leviticus, the, the place where um, every good Bible reading program goes to die, right? It kind of gets there, and it's like, I'm done. Um, but as been the case for the entire letter, uh, we are left wondering, okay, if that's how they were supposed to worship, what does it look like for us? Or better yet, what does it look like? Maybe you ask this question, what does it look like if Jesus has fulfilled the entire Old Covenant, and he's fulfilled everything, what is there left for me to do? Or, or maybe, what does it look like to live, Paul would make this distinction in the book of Romans, what does it look like to live under grace instead of under law? What does that look like, right? What is, what is my life supposed to reflect? What does it look like when Jesus says, follow me? And the answer, as we'll find out here, has nothing to do necessarily with the individual Christian, but with the community of Christians. This passage, worship looks like the body of Christ. It looks like the local church. Notice what I read in 1228. Notice the language. It's very important. The key word there is let us. Let us. Not let me, not let you, but let us offer acceptable worship. So everything in chapter 13 has to do with us together as a family. We don't offer sacrifices of animals or follow rituals, but rather serve and love as a community of believers called the church. And the writer's saying, we will never make it in life. We'll never make it in life if we don't have community. We'll never make it in life without the local church. There's even more here for the writer isn't interested in them just making much of Jesus in the bubble. It's not just what we do inside of a building or inside of our church membership family. It's what we do together outside of these walls. Right? That's where he's going to go. If you flip over to chapter 13, towards the end of this chapter, he's, here's where he's getting to. Look down in verse 13. Therefore, let us go, go to him, speaking of Jesus, outside the camp, outside the walls. And he says here, and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Right? We read this at the very beginning of our part of our kind of liturgy at the beginning of our service. That's where the book is going. Make much of Jesus together outside the walls. So the people can see, right? That's the goal. So the bottom line is we make much of Jesus as a family on mission. Or as we put it here in kind of our, our mission statement, right? We seek to delight in Jesus, grow the relationship, serve our community, and be sent into the world. And how we live is absolutely vital for that community and that mission out there. We live in a non-Christian culture, a progressively more non-Christian culture. And one of the things that that means is that the people outside of these walls, people outside of Christianity, are going to probably read us more than they're going to read the Bible, right? They're going to read us, and they're going to know, they're going to try to understand what we believe by who we are. And so uh, Alexander McLaren once said, the world takes its notion of God, most of all, from those who say they belong to God's family. And so the people of God can be one of the greatest advantages to the gospel together, or they can be one of the greatest deterrents to the gospel, right? How we live can be one of the greatest deterrents. Gandhi once said, he said, quote, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. He said, I might have become a Christian if I'd ever actually saw one. Ouch. G.K. Chesterton, in over in England, a writer in England, said the greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is the lives of Christians. Bertrand Russell, a philosopher and atheist, 
He wrote an essay uh, called Why I Am Not a Christian. And you would think in that argument he would have given philosophical reasons. He argued from science and all these different kind of logical arguments he would try to propose. But actually, he didn't use any of those. In his, in his article he wrote, he focused on the lives of Christians that he knew. And here's what he said, Bertrand Russell. I think there are many good points upon which I agree with Christ a great deal more than many professing Christians. I do not know that I can go all the way with him, but I, I could go with him much further than most professing Christians can. I do not profess to live up to Christ's standards myself, but then after all, it's not quite the same thing for, his, for a Christian, is it? Our culture has no idea anymore what a Christian is. So many people just stick the label, I'm Christian because I'm American, right? I'm Christian, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest, right? I'm Christian. And they, they, have, they have no connection necessarily to Christ, but they have the name and title, and the world looks at that and, goes and lumps us all together into the same group. It has no idea anymore what a Christian is. It's interesting what people think when you ask them what a Christian is. I did a Google search, which is also kind of scary at times, but I did a Google search on who is a Christian and what does a Christian look like? And these are the things I got back. One is I got pictures of Christian Bale, the actor. <laughs> Christian Swagger, the wrestler. Um, Christian dating services. I got a lot of pictures of Donald Trump, which is kind of scary. Um, I also got like freaky pictures of uh, Caucasian Jesus with his chest ripped open with a, with a glowing heart, which is really kind of scary. And I also got pictures, and I kid you not, I got pictures of Napoleon and Petey. Now, you're probably going, to, who's Petey? Petey's a dead bird from Dumb and Dumber, if you remember him or not. Does anybody remember Petey? Pretty bird, pretty bird. Probably want a cracker. Right? We're, we're in a world of trouble when, when a society contemplates Christians, they think of Trump, Napoleon, and Petey, right? That's really bad, right? I mean, that's their association. You talk to people on the street, you ask them, people at work or whatever, you ask them, hey, what is a Christian? You'll hear things like, ah, oh, it's an organized religion with a political agenda. It's a group of people that oppresses women. It is a group of judgmental and negative people, homophobic, arrogant, all the different things and labels that you'll get along with that. So the call of God on our lives as a church, as, as individuals in this church, is to not only join and be part of the local church, but go out and make much of Jesus so people can actually see who Jesus really is. Not what culture has made him out to be. Not what other people who have the label of Christian claim to be. And so the writer, Hebrews, Hebrews 13 finishes off, he's a pastor of this, this group of people, and he finishes off this section by giving ten very practical things for them to do. Ten ways for them to make much of Jesus. And we're going to look at all ten of those. Not today. We'll look at three today, and we'll look at three next week and four the other. So let's look at the three. The three we'll look at today is the following. We need to love the church, we need to open our home, and we need to care for the hurting. Okay, that's our three practical things he's going to give us. All right, number one, love the church. He says here at the very beginning, chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. I, think it's, I always think it's fascinating. What, what does he say and what does he not say? What does he start with? What does he not start with? And so the first very practical advice the pastor of this church gives is just be a genuine family. Let me think about all the things he could have said. All right, what does worship look like? Following, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you, number one, I want you to go tell people about him. Didn't say that. I, I want you to go preach the word. Didn't say that. I want you to go pray. He didn't say that. I mean, these are all good things. But the very first thing he says is I want you to be a genuine family. I want the people who follow Christ to be a genuine family together. And it's so much more than just showing up for events. It's so much more than just checking off a list that I showed up on a Sunday morning. It's not less than that necessarily, but it's, not, it's, not, it's definitely more than that. 
Brotherly love here is a strong identification and care for one another as a family. The Greek word, you may be familiar with this one, it's a city within our, uh, within our culture. It's the word Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. These are what these people are supposed to be. It involves sharing, involvement, listening, caring, and vulnerability. And this is not the first time that the writer of Hebrews has, has hit this theme for us. He's, he's made a lot of connections to family and brotherhood. Look at a few of these. Hebrews 2 11 through 13, speaking of Jesus, says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Same chapter, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Hebrews 12, the last chapter we've looked at here, chapter 5, I'm chapter 12, 5 and 6. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, now why? These are questions I ask. Now, why make this idea of family and brotherhood and deep love for each other be the very first way to make much of Jesus to the culture around? Why is that the very first thing? Think about, go back to the Gospels for a minute, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And think about what, what was Jesus doing the last three years of his life, which is most of the, the, the content of those Gospels is the last three years of his life. What was he doing? He, he wasn't writing a book. He wasn't campaigning for president. He wasn't raising funds. What was he doing? He was creating a family. He was creating a family. He was building the movement of the church. Think about that. Um, it wouldn't have been easier for Jesus to maybe just show up on a daily basis, commute from heaven to earth, you know, come down, do his commute, stand on top of a mountain, teach some, preach some sermons, and commute back up and come back the next day and just kind of give some lessons all the time. But you see that Jesus definitely taught, he definitely gave lessons, but most of the time in the Gospels, he's moving, he's with people, he's with his disciples, as we call them. That's what he was doing. He was building family. He was creating the DNA of the church. That's why he was with those guys 24-7, all the time for three years. And listen, when, when he was teaching them, he was calling them names. And it was a good thing, actually. He was calling them things um, like that they are a city on a hill, a community together. It talks about, talks about them being a flock with one shepherd, a, a new nation, a, a people of God, a family. You can't be those things by yourself. It's only done in the church. He wasn't building the church, again, for the sake of the church itself or for the sake of the mission of reaching the lost. That's why the very first thing the writer of Hebrews says is go love each, love each other. Be a genuine family together. Look what Jesus says, John thirteen thirty five. Always a very shocking verse because you're going to ask the question, by this, Jesus says, all people will know that you're my disciples. You're like, well, what's that going to be? Like, what is, how are they going to know if you have love for one another? That is, I mean, that is shocking. They say that's how they're going to know. They're going to see that genuine love and sacrifice and care and vulnerability and genuineness within the body of Christ itself, and they will see me, Jesus says. This is the way the world, a way to show the world the glory of God. It's not just through, through events or activities or attendance, but through love for one another. If you think about uh, having worked in L.A. and worked with a lot of brokenness in, the, in that place and, and worked in inner city there, when you start asking the questions and figuring out why do people make the decisions that they do, 
you ask the, ask the questions, you know, why, why do, do women abort their babies? Why do men commit the crimes that they do? Why do they end up homeless on the street corner? And, and you may say, well, it's just because they're evil or because they had bad breaks. And, and I, I push back on that. If you do, the, you do ask the questions, and you'll find out it's so much more than just that. Because the fact of the matter is, we're all just as evil. You may not like that, but that's true. We're all just as evil, and we're all just as broken. It, it's so much more than that. A lot of it has to do, when you start asking the questions and figuring it out, it has a lot to do with relationships. It has a lot to do with connections and family. People are more likely to turn to their community, their, their relationships around them for advice, than, say, ask an expert. And if we're going to impact the culture, right, we have to have a dynamic family that cares about each other and invites others into that family. This is the kind of radical lifestyle that Jesus calls for that's very different than our westernized ideals of individualism. It's radical now, and here's the thing. It was just as radical then. This wasn't just something that was unique for this culture 2,000 years ago. It was just as radical then as it is now. Uh, Lucian was a Greek writer, a historian back in the 2nd century, so about, a, about 100 years removed from, from the right reading we have here. He was not a Christian, and he was commenting on Christians. Here's what he said. He said their founder, so he's speaking of Jesus here, Lucian is, their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. That's pretty shocking, right? That's what he's saying. He's observing them going like, man, their, their founder has persuaded them to be like brothers. I mean, they operate like a family. This is radical. This is so different. Tim Keller, noted on this passage and this, this, uh, this verse as the following, says, if you think by coming to a service or to great teaching or church event, um, but you do not give up your privacy, you do not become accountable, you do not actually get into deep relationships where your personal lives are connected to others, then you're part of a Christian club, not the Christian church. Unless you're relating to others in the church at a brotherhood level and not the club or class level, then the empowering presence of God is not working through you. So whether you choose to believe it or not, family shapes you more than any of your personal choices do. Some of you are still young enough to believe that you're really the product of your own decisions and not your family, but sooner or later you realize that they have more impact on you than ever, and they ever thought they would. Your relationships, your family affects every area of your life. They have, they have open door to your life. They, you are vulnerable, you can't fake it around them, they know who you really are, they get speaking in the area of your life. Think about that. Other relationships aren't like that. Um, when you go to work or um, you go to your CrossFit gym or whatever it is, right, that there's one area of life those people speak into. They kind of speak into your work life. They speak into your fitness life or whatever it may be. Right? If you're part of a chess club and someone says, as you sit there and go like, look, I don't know why you're dating him. He's no good for you. You can tell them like, look, we're here for chess, man, right, or girl, if you're, I don't know, let me flip that over. We're here for chess, lady. I just messed those up. You get the idea, right? We're here for chess. We're not here to talk about relationships. We're not here to talk about this or that. We, we're here to talk about chess. But in a family, all points of life connect with all of theirs. You can't avoid the hard conversations. That's the kind of family that God wants to build within the local church. For some of you, uh, family was rough, right? And so it's hard to make that connection. I know what that's like. But God has given you a new family now. So when you come to know Christ and you, you get baptized, you identify with Christ publicly, you become a member of the local church, this is a new family now that helps shape you 
and help mold you and help grow you. I think it's interesting. I think it's one of the things when Jesus talks about being born again, there are, that means a lot of things. And we usually think of that in the theological side of things. But one of the practical sides of what it means to be born again means that you need to be reparented by God as your father and the church as your siblings. Right? We're, we're born again. We're a new life now. We're in a new family. We've got a, a new father now, and we have new siblings. Right? It's all part of that theological understanding. A family that will love you and listen to you. And so if you fail to gather with the church, if you fail to join the family of God, then you're not worshiping God. That's what the writer's saying. This is what it looks like. But also, if you just come to church, come to a service, you don't get connected to the lives of others, uh, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying to us, look, I don't care how loud you sing, I don't care how many notes you take, I don't care how moved you feel by the sermon, you are not worshiping Jesus if you're not connected as a family. So that's the first one, love the local church. Number two, open your home. Open your home. Number, verse two says this, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this practice is very much related to verse one. Basically verse one is telling us work hard at, um, work hard at working with the insiders, okay, the insiders. Verse two says do the same kind of work with those who are, who are outsiders. Matter of fact, the, listen to the two words. The first word, Greek word, is you know, Philadelphia, the brotherly love. The second one is Philoxenia. You hear this very similar, right? Love of strangers. So love of brothers, love of strangers is really all the two verses say, right? Those are the two points. So love brothers, love strangers. Uh, the latter can involve not just unbelievers, but also believers who are not known or not connected. And again, it's all over the Bible. Romans twelve thirteen: contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so the point is not that you just invite friends over for a meal, right? You watch a game together, whatever it may be, and say, oh, I'm doing hospitality. The thrust behind the verses here in Hebrews is open your home for strangers, those who are unknown to you, those who you may know, but you don't really know. It involves welcoming people despite creed or status. It involves welcoming them with no intention of any payment or anything in return. Jesus said something very similar to this, which may be actually, what I'm going to read here, maybe the most radical thing Jesus ever said in terms of practical what it looks like to follow him. Listen to this. Luke 14, 12 through 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed, for they cannot repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I mean, who does this? I mean, mean, really, just look at that. Try to apply that one right there. We invite friends over because we like hanging out with them. How often do we invite strangers over or people we don't know very well, much less those who are, in this passage, marginalized by society on the outskirts? We're more apt to invite people where we will receive some benefit. And listen, it's not, I'm not saying it's wrong to invite friends over. That's not what we're saying at all. I just read those verses from Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, right? Those are definitely invite people over that you know. That's okay. But this one in Hebrews and the one Jesus mentions Luke 14 are radically different. You see, we're more like our culture than we care to realize. As a matter of fact, the culture we live in is very similar to ancient Rome. There's a lot of similarities to the culture these guys lived in. In Roman culture... It was common that people did things for other people and they showed hospitality so that it opened doors for them into some, something they wanted, got them into circles that they wanted to get into. It was called the patronage system, 
That's how they did it. They're going to invite people over that they can make connections with, get a better job for, you know, move up, whatever it may be. And so it's the same culture we live in today. We are, call, we are being called instead, though, here to bless and give and invite without expecting anything in return. Now, it's important to understand that hospitality was probably one of the key missional strategies in the early church, right? It's how they reached the lost. And again, we talk about loving, loving one another, but this love of strangers was a huge way of winning people. It was used, uh, and it was used for a reason. Uh, if you understand the culture back then, there were no hotels, okay? They didn't have the Marriott or whatever it may be. Didn't have it back then. Um, only they had something like basically would be considered maybe hostels. Also, in light of, of the persecution that was happening, the persecution that was to come, you can read about it in First Peter, it was likely that believers would be uh, expelled out of their homes. They'd be on the run, have no place to stay in need of shelter. We've already read about that in chapter 10. And there would be great risk. It'd be great risk for Christians just to welcome other Christians in their house when those other Christians have been expelled or had their homes taken by the government or lost their jobs or that way. You would identify with them. That would put you at risk. So it was very, very risky. Also, for anyone traveling, whether they be a believer or not, the inns or these hostels were horrible places. Um, a couple of the Greek writers, Dionysus, a Greek writer, records in his journal that a, re- a request of a friend who asked him to tell him, say, hey, where the, where's the inn with the fewest fleas? <laughs> That's what he's asking for. Um, Plato, not, not the stuff you, not Plato, but Plato, tells of an innkeeper keeping his guests hostage. Another Greek writer talked about innkeeping on the level of running a brothel. Like, that's how bad it was back then to go to one of these places. So you understand this command was super important. Um, so this is a vital ministry. Okay, and then, not then, but it was also just as strategic and essential today. And so hospitality forces us to do what Jesus, incarnational ministry, kind of being like Jesus meaning it forces us to go outside of the, the comforts and confines of maybe the local church and the people that we know and engage the world. Churches are dying because they're, they're relying purely on the attractional model, right? Sunday morning programs, do it really well, bring the people in, show them great things, you know, and, and that, that'll grow the church. And it's just not working. We need that. We need to have do well on Sunday mornings. We need to invite unbelievers. We need to preach and talk in a way they can understand what we're saying, right? We need to be hospitable in all those ways, but we got to go out into their places where they are. You need to bring people into your home. You need to enter their homes. Um, you can even include meetings in neutral places, right? Go to the local Starbucks sporting event or go to our park. It's all part of why we're building this thing so you can make those relational connections. Just be places where people are and engage them, invite them, and welcome them. Now, this, uh, this requires initiative. We don't like that, but it requires initiative because strangers don't come and knock on your door, right? They don't just go like, hey, cook me some dinner, right? There's some strange person coming. If if they do that, by the way, you don't want to invite them in, all right? That's not a good idea. You're like, well, maybe they're the angel, right? I don't know where. No, they're a demon probably. You don't want to invite them in, you know, if they they come in with like, you know, a can of fava beans and a a Chianti, you know, don't don't invite them in, definitely. You may not get that one. Um. So you have to meet them, right? You got to get to know them, and you got to invite them. Same goes for church on Sundays, right? Same idea. And listen, just a, a good meal, dessert, whatever, coffee, nothing crazy, nothing fancy. Just a, a meal. A meal communicates so much. Uh, for one, it communicates that you, are, you as a Christian are normal. You eat food. You can laugh, right? You can enjoy life in that way. Um, it, it connects you with people. It builds friendships and forces you to listen to people. Interesting enough, the, the Latin word for companion 
is the word used for sharing a meal. Isn't it interesting? That's how they understood what it meant to be a companion. What it meant to, to love people was share a meal together, right? That probably makes sense. Read the Gospels closely, and you'll find Jesus doing this a lot. He's always eating the meal, right? Um, hospitality to strangers, whether it be inviting them in or going to their place, was a very common practice of Jesus. Every time you flip the page, he's eating the meal. Right? He's, he's, what writer said, he's either coming from a meal or going to a meal. He got himself killed over who he ate with. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's eating all the time. I refuse to believe that he was this rail-thin man depicted in most films, right? I'm, I'm going for more husky Jesus. Um, maybe like the phys- physique of Thor if you've watched Endgame or something like that. Um, there's only three statements made. Get the, now listen to this closely. There's only three statements made by Jesus or people as to why he came. Three of them. You may know these. Number one, he came to serve, he says. Number two, he came to seek and save the lost. Third reason he came, it says he came eating and drinking. That's another statement made in the Gospels. So the first two were purpose. The last one was method. All right, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve. How did he do it? Eating and drinking. He came to people's places. He ate with them. He talked with them. He ate a meal with them. Uh, many of his miracles revolved around food and hospitality. His last invitation to the church in the book of Revelation is what? Come eat with me, right? And then you read about the new earth and new heavens and new earth and being with Jesus. We're eating again, right? I mean, it's all part of how God made us. You know, that's, that's not shocking when we go to the book of Acts and we see the church start living out what Jesus, kind of the DNA he put into the, the, the followers. They are eating meals together as a way of mission, Matter of fact, in the early church, they had these things, they called them the agape feasts. Maybe you've heard of this. It's the love feasts, right? And this is what they did. They, they would have these big meals. They invite a bunch of strangers in. Um, and we did that early on in our local church. When we were church planting, it was one of the most like, great strategies we had because I had a bunch of single people that didn't know how to cook for themselves. And so what would happen after church service every Sunday, we'd have a meal. And we just, everybody who comes to church, we'd have a meal afterwards. And we'd go to the, you know, we were renting out this auditorium, and we'd all have a meal together. And it was like a great way to make connections and meet people at that point. But in the early church, this was, this was so effective. I mean, it was so effective that Roman Emperor Julian, okay, in the third century, said the following. <laughs> this is great. He says, and he's very upset, okay, so he says this. These irreverent Galileans, they called them Christians, they called them all kinds of names. This was one of them because Galilee was kind of like considered like the, the boondocks, you know, out there, and Jesus was from Galilee. And so they says, uh, he says, these irreverent Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. They are welcoming them into their agape. This is those feasts. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes, <laughs> While the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity, and by a display of false compassion, have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. See their love feasts, and their tables spread out for the needy. Such practice is common among them, and causes a contempt for our gods. Wow. <laughs> That's his commentary on him as an emperor looking at the Christians. Like, man, they're winning people left and right just by inviting them to eat a meal with them, Right? So let's, let's talk practical here for a minute. I'm not a super practical guy. You know that. Um, you're probably Chris. You just talk too much theology all the time. Well, okay, let's talk practical for a minute. What does it look like? First, get to know people you don't know, right? Frequent places. You know, the coffee shops, the grocery stores, right? Go to the same person. I was over in England recently and was with Dave Kelso, and he just, I mean, he's very purposeful in what he does. We, I, I spent most of my time with him as we were on the trip, and he would go to the same laundromat and make sure the same lady is there working at that time. He'd go to the grocery store and go to the same aisle, the same checkout aisle every time to meet the same person. 
And he's just greeting them over and over and over again. Eventually, after he starts to ask them questions about their family and about their life, and is there anything I can pray for? And he's getting to know them, right? He's seeing them on a consistent basis. And then he invites them over to his house for a meal. And then he invites them over to the church. And here's this church full of people that have come into Christ because Dave Kelso is just going to the same grocery aisle over and over again. I mean, it's not, it's not complex, right? It's not real difficult. It's just being purposeful, seeing the same person you don't know over and over again, caring for them and being interested in them, right? Um, number two, open your home up. Invite people over. Again, two-thirds probably won't come because they don't trust you. Right? That's how it works in our, in our day and age. But invite, invite some of them uh, to church. Invite them to, to eat afterwards. If you can't get them to come to your house, maybe they'll come to a service. They come to a service, hey, let's eat lunch afterwards, right? Um, number three, it's a, good, it's a good opportunity to clean your place up, right? Show hospitality. Should be motivation to organize your home, right? If you're, if you're a spouse and you're upset the other spouse being, un, being uh, sloppy, Invite strangers over and make them clean up, right? That's the best way to do it. Uh, number four, be, enjoy creative activities with your guests when they come over. Uh, I love this. When our kids were young, we always had them prepare questions. And they always prepare questions to ask of whoever we had over to our house. And it was always funny because Sadie, when she was really little, she always had the same question. This was it. She said, she'd always ask, they'd all go around and ask her questions, and we always knew what Sadie was going to ask. She'd always ask, who's your favorite snowman? And this was before Olaf, Okay. So every, every, every stranger, every person sitting across the table would always look at us and go like, um, Frosty? Like, it's like, I don't know any other snowman, right? But that was always her question. She always wanted to know, what was your favorite snowman? And number five, another way to apply this verse, honestly, a very practical way to apply this, is to actually serve here on a Sunday morning in, in children's ministry. Serve in children's ministry or serve on the welcome team. Because what are you doing? You're welcoming strangers, right? You're, you're welcoming strangers' children, right? You're working with them. You're getting to know them. That's a very practical way to get started, push yourself out of your comfort zone in a very structured kind of environment. Join the welcome team. Join the children's ministry, right? Get working with people you don't know. All right, last point. Number three, care for the hurting. It says in verse three, remember those in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So here we have seen that we are to love the church, we are to open our homes, and this is what it looks like to worship Jesus in a very practical way. What it looks like to be, as the writer has said, citizens of this unshakable kingdom, citizens of the city of God. And so here's a third way, all right? And it's caring for the hurting, remembering and helping the marginalized. It goes beyond just prison, because the word for mistreated means harsh oppression, those who are treated harshly. Uh, this is the mercy and kind of justice arm of the church. Now, prison, for these guys, was a familiar situation. We've looked at this in chapter 10, right? Some of them have already been thrown into prison because of their faith and commitment to Christ. And the church, as we noted in chapter 10, as the passage said, were engaging people who were in prison. That was happening. And so the writer here is kind of reminding them, hey, don't forget that. Don't don't stop doing that. Keep doing that. Now, let's understand what they were called to do and why so that we can apply it to our situation, Okay. Prison life in those days was not the same as today. Um, I mean, I work in L.A., I mean, I knew people would get themselves arrested purposefully. Like, they would literally get themselves arrested purposefully because they needed medical care or they needed food or they needed shelter, right? That's how it kind of worked in some ways within the inner city. Back then, you didn't get any of those things. None of those th- You didn't want to get arrested because right? you got nothing for that. Um, matter of fact, it was uh, the, those suffering in prison, whether they were Christians or not, were virtually dependent on the local church for survival because their own families would disown them because it was a big shame and honor culture, right? 
If your family member got arrested, got thrown in prison, you're like, I'm going to disown them. I don't want to know them, right? That's kind of how that worked out. So the local church were the ones who came in and helped them. It was a common practice. Uh, again, a Greek historian, one of them said, he wrote the following. He says, if you hear that any one of their number is in prison, he's speaking of Christians again, or they're in distress for the sake of their Christ's name, they all render aid in his necessity. And if, it, and if he can be redeemed, they set him free. Another historian said, in the early days, no Christian in trouble for his faith was ever neglected or forgotten by his fellow Christians. There's another story um, where Christians were taken captive, uh, and the church at Carthage had raised, they raised money to ransom them. There were actual cases in early church history where Christians sold themselves into slavery to rescue their fellow brother and sister out of prison. That was their payment to get them out. I mean, this was like, this was the practice. That's why I tell you, you got to read church history, because, man, you read this stuff, and you go like, that's what it looks like. Um, Christians used the prison as a means to show mercy and reach people for Christ because no one else cared for them. It became such a pattern for the church to be ministering to those in prison that, again, Lucian, who's another Roman historian, right, he wrote the following. Here's what he said. And this is so good. Imagine this. It's prison on the, on, on the day of. He's, he's writing commentary on what he sees. He said this. From the very break of day, aged widows and orphaned children could be seen waiting near the prison. You're like, well, why were, why were orphans and widows waiting near the prison. You know why? Because they knew that's where the Christians would be. (laughs) They're like, we need help. And we know the Christians are going to be at the prisons helping those who can't be helped. So if we want help, we need to go to the prisons. And so there they are. In the mornings are waiting. There's orphans and widows waiting at the prisons because they know that's where the Christians are coming to serve. Um, Lucy went on record, uh, went on to record that meals were brought in, and he says, quote, sacred books of theirs were read aloud at the prison. (laughs) So they're reading the Bible, they're giving them food, they're talking to the prisoners, widows and orphans are showing up because they don't have anybody to care for them. And the, you understand why Christianity blew up, right? You understand why it exploded as it did. I reminded you of this last week, and I'll keep bringing this up because it's so good. One of the main reasons that we're here today is because of this kind of ministry, right? The early church back in the third and fourth century um, were just a marginalized group of people. They weren't very big. They weren't a very small percentage of the Roman Empire and quickly became a majority. And as we talked about last time, right, it was because of what happened during the plagues. Plagues came in. It wasn't just the people who were in prison. It was the sick. Uh, they wiped out the population. The Roman citizens were getting out of Dodge, right? They left their families behind. They left other Roman citizens, left, left the others behind, uh, family, friends, all of them. Doctors and nurses left. Those left behind were affected with the plague. Many historians noted that it, they called them like the walking dead. They're like, they're just walking around. They're all going to die. Those who could not afford to leave, who were Roman citizens, boarded up their doors and their windows to keep anybody from getting in because they didn't want to get sick. So what's left is walking the streets of these people who are dying from the plague. And guess who else is left? Christians. <laughs> they didn't leave. They stayed. And, 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 and so they stayed there. And in the midst of that, that population, they lived, Christians lived in cities purposely lived in places plagued by poor sanitation and ethnic tension. They lived in cultures that radically constrained the freedom and dignity of women. They lived in societies that were exposed, where they exposed or drowned unwanted infants. They lived in societies full of strangers. They went into these places and lived so that they could see people come and know Christ. They also lived in places ridden with crime. Jerome um, Carcopino, as I say his name, in his book, The Daily Life of Ancient Rome, so he was writing kind of history, he said, quote, night fell over the city like the shadow of a great danger, diffused, sinister, and menacing. Everyone fled to his home, shut himself in, and barricaded the entrance. 
The shops fell silent. Safety chains were drawn behind the leaves of the doors. Right? So this is it's what he's explaining Roman culture is like. This is what it's like. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of the plagues, the Christians, again, they stayed in the cities. They didn't board up their homes. They opened up their homes. They invited people in who were sick. Um, they weren't doctors. They weren't nurses. They just simply gave, you know, food, water, care as they could. Rodney Stark, in his book on uh, the story of Christianity, said during the crisis, Christians fulfilled their ideal of ministering to everyone. And there were many pagan survivors, unbelievers, who owned, owed their lives to their Christian neighbors. So as we said before, after consecutive epidemics, those remaining were either Christians or unbelievers who were nursed through the sickness by their Christian neighbors. And the response to seeing people willing to give up their lives caused unbelievers to listen to the gospel and become Christians themselves. This is why Christianity blew up as it did. So the Christians were unstoppable force, not because of uh, not, not just because of um, what, what, they, what, what they went to and what they attended, but because of their love and their service to those outside. Again, Rodney Stark said the following. He said, To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity offered a new and expanded sense of family. The cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And the cities faced with epidemics and fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. So you say, why did they do all that? Why in the world would they do such a thing? Well, our verse gives us one of the reasons. One of the reasons here is one of their motivations was not based on the fact that they were just part of the family of the body of Christ, but rather because they shared their humanity. If you notice in the text here in verse 3, since you also are in the body, that's not, a, I know you're thinking maybe body of Christ. That's not what it is. It's a reference to humanity, right? So they, they projected their own humanity in the place of the other human, right? They saw them and thought, what would it be like to be them? And they simply shared that humanity. Christians went back to the image of God that was placed on every man and going every woman. And you're like, okay, I, I want to, I see what that feels like. I, I want to help them, right? So just simply empathized with them. But the other reason was because they, what they knew of Jesus. All these acts of loving each other and opening your home and caring for the broken, honestly, they're all acts of extreme selflessness, right? I mean, they're all things that go against the grain of, I want me, my time. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, right? He gave up everything to reach us. He who had everything gave up everything to give us everything. I'm not trying to spoil anything, but watch Endgame. You'll see that very closely, actually. It's funny how that theme comes up. This is the commentary by a pastor. I love this. One of the pastors during the plagues, he wrote a book, and he, and he commented on what was going on. Listen to his comments about the people in his church. Bishop Dionysus, he says this. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing caring for others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Is that not it? Do you see why they did it? I mean, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Isn't I mean, let me read that last line. They transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. In other words, they helped them come back to health. They got the plague. They died, but they lived. 
That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He died that we might live. He took our sin onto himself and died in our stead so that we could have life. These guys were just simply living out the gospel. It's not that hard. I mean, it is hard. Trust me, it's, it's hard. But it's simple at the same time, right? Love through sacrifice was a revolutionary idea to the unbelievers in Rome. And it's still a revolutionary idea today. The Christians had a theological basis for sacrificing their lives because they worshipped a crucified Savior. They worshipped a God who didn't come to take power but to give it away. Unbelievers couldn't get their people to sacrifice. They couldn't get their people to do anything. They all ran for the hills, but the Christians stayed. They had motivation. The others didn't. Rodney Stark noted the following. He says, Emperor Julian, remember the guy we talked about earlier who was really upset at Christians? Emperor Julian urged pagan priests to match these Christian practices, right? He's like, hey, get back in that city and help out. But there was little or no response because there were no doctrinal basis or traditional practices for them to build on. They had no motivation. They're like, Julian, why should we do this? And he, gave, he had no reason for them to do it other than just do it. Christians had all the motivation in the world. They didn't have anybody tell them to do it. Their pastors weren't telling them, get in there and help. They did it out of motivation for what they understood Jesus did for them. So my friends, we have every reason to love the church, to open our home and care for the hurting because Jesus left his home to get you. He loved you when you and I were unlovable, right? He cared for the hurting by taking on their sin on himself and dying in their stead. So listen, I, I, don't, I don't care what you do, but for the love of God, do something, okay? This is really practical. Pick one. Go with it, right? Don't just sit here and just show up for service. Live out what Jesus has done for you. If you truly have embraced the gospel, then live out that narrative into your life. Take his life and place it upon yours. If you understand have embraced the, the, the life and death and resurrection of Christ for you, then live that out by being selfless and sacrificing and giving to those in return. The world will know Jesus by our love for one another by opening up our homes and caring for the broken. My friends, that is what worship looks like in the New Testament. That is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we take communion. We do this every Sunday because we want to remember that very sacrifice. All right? So as we go to communion, we'll have some quiet time. If you're new with us, this is what we do. We have a little quiet time, no music, just kind of quiet, to reflect on what God is speaking to you about. Take one of the three. Focus in on one of the three. Maybe all three is overwhelming to you. It's okay. Take baby steps, okay? Just take one. Ask God to, God, help me in this one. Show me how I can live out your gospel in this way, okay? And if you're, when you're ready, and if you're ready, if you're a follower of Christ, you may come to the tables, take a bread and a juice as we remember the body and, body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him, and we give our offerings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to read your word. God, these passages are very short and very pointed, and yet, God, very convicting. Um, God, we admit that we all fall short of your glory. We all fall short of your commands, and though we live in grace, though we are forgiven past, present, and future, yet, God, the gospel motivates us in our soul to want to honor you, to want to worship you, to want to make much of you in, in our body here, but also, God, out into the world together. God, help us, show us, direct us, give us ideas, help us be creative, help us take risks. God, help us be vulnerable, God, as we, as we move out as a body. In Jesus' name, amen.